If you were here last week, you'd know that uh, we are going through a two-week sort of mini-series looking at the church's vision. Um, and it's around this time of year, every year, that we like to stop and to hit refresh and to remind ourselves, in the light of the good news of Jesus, the gospel, what do we see for ourselves and our city? What is the future hope that we have for Montreal? And the answer to this forms our vision. And one of the things that vision helps us do is it helps us direct, it helps us channel our energy towards things that matter. Or you could say it like this, that vision helps you avoid excelling at meaningless things. Helps you avoid excelling at meaningless things. Uh, so last week, you might remember, as I started to lay out our sort of corporate uh, vision, the vision for the church, I also threw in the question, well, what is the personal vision that you have for your life? Do you have a vision for your life? And I'm not talking about a, a sort of five-year plan or a, a career path. I'm talking about, well, your whole life, a, a future vision for the entirety of your life. And I ask this because whatever vision you have, whatever future hope you have will end up shaping the entirety of it or at least it should. And yet, if it should, I then think that we are in danger of what one philosopher called misliving. His name is William Irving. Read it. There's a danger that you will mislive, that despite all your activity, despite all your pleasant diversions you might have enjoyed while you're alive, you will end up living a bad life. There is, in other words, a danger that when you're on your deathbed, you will look back and realize that you wasted your one chance at living. Instead of spending your life pursuing something genuinely valuable, you squandered it because you allowed yourself to be distracted by the various baubles life has to offer. See, I don't want to get to the end of my life. I don't want to be on my deathbed and realize that I squandered my life, misliving. Pursuing meaningless things, being excellent at meaningless things. Last week, I was watching my uh, baby daughter Hazel play on a, a foam mat that we have in the corner of our kitchen where we keep all her, her toys. And it's pretty fascinating. She would pick up one toy, and then she'd kind of scoot off the other side and deposit it, and then quickly head over here and pick something up, and then over here and drop this and pick that up, and just feverishly moving around. A lot of focus, a lot of energy. I can see a lot of movement to it, but then stepping back, I realized she's busy, but in a sense, she was busy doing nothing. <laughs> How much of us are like this, right? See, without a vision for our lives, there's a danger that we will mislive, that we'll be busy doing nothing. This is why I want us to be thinking about how we can channel our efforts and our energies towards things that matter, towards things that are worthwhile. Because if you're a Christian, you're part of a narrative that's bigger than yourself. You're part of a vision that's bigger than only what you can see, that God wants you to be part of his vision, the vision he has for his church, the vision for this city, for the world. And his, his vision, then, isn't just going to be carried about by, by pastors and elders. No, it requires all of us. We're all gospel and vision carriers. And so what is our church's vision? Well, it is that we exist to see the truth 
the goodness and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people, anticipating his return. And so last week I talked about saturation, unpacking that first part of the statement. We exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate Montreal. About how Isaiah 55, that that vision of the word coming down, going deep, not returning void, how the gospel penetrates deep in our life and has wide implications on all of who we are. And it implicates us to the point that we're saturating, we're soaking in gospel goodness. And it's a sort of inside-out transformation that brings true, real, and lasting change. And so this week, we continue a vision for gospel saturation last week. This week, a vision for gospel renewal, about how that same gospel that you have been soaked in is to move out and renew externally. And I'll do that by looking at an ancient vision that the prophet Ezekiel had. We read the whole of the chapter today, but I'll be looking just at the first part, the vision. Ezekiel is a prophet, a Jewish prophet, um, and he lived in a time when his country had been colonized by foreign power. Uh, Many of its people had been captured, and they were carried off into um, the Babylonian Empire, a foreign, hostile empire. And so he's living in a time of utter Uh, devastation. His country has been uh, defeated. The city of Jerusalem been destroyed. The temple has uh, been desecrated, torn down. Um, And so you have these believers in God like the prophet Ezekiel, a believer brought to live amongst unbelievers, uh, pagans, people who are hostile to the the biblical God. And so Ezekiel and others, they're asking this question well uh, in exile, which is the situation they're in. They're asking this question, as a believer in an unbelieving world, what hope is there for renewal? In a world that is hostile to what I believe, in a world in which uh, the institutions are hostile, in a world which the arts are against, in a world to which those in the government hold a different worldview, what future is there for a Bible believer? Because it seems like we're going against the tide. It can feel hopeless. And I think you can see how this is pretty relevant to us today as well, because not too long ago, our institutions, our government, was supportive, if not in some cases overtly professing uh, some sort of Christian belief. But that's certainly not the case anymore. And so we join Ezekiel in asking that same question. As a believer in an unbelieving world, what hope is there for renewal? And so this vision is our answer. And so we're going to be looking at the position that resets, the word that rebuilds, and the spirit that renews. So first, the position uh, that resets. Uh, If you have your Bibles, will you open with me to Ezekiel uh, chapter 37? I'll be going through the verses uh, quite a bit. Um, But as you do that, Lord, I pray that um, spirit that you would be Uh, With me, I know that Brian has already prayed for this, but Lord, I I sense my utter dependence on you. Um, Lord, would you speak? Lord, would your power move in this room? Would you be changing us? Would you be restructuring our hearts for your glory and your kingdom come in Jesus' name? So Ezekiel 37 and verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, And he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord. So this is 
clearly a vision, and he set me down in the middle of a valley. And what does he see there? It was full of bones, he says. Verse 2, and he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And so Ezekiel is there, and he's, he's looking at this valley, which says it's, it's full of bones, and there had not been a few but many uh, dead. It says that they were very dry. In other words, they had been dead for uh, a long time, exposed, uh, not buried. In fact, it says they're on the surface of the valley. So there's a sort of sense of uh, desecration. Uh, there has been no burial that takes place. There's a, an unresolvedness about this scene. Um, and it's a chaotic mess, right? Skeletons, uh, like puzzle pieces scattered on the ground left, right. And so we wonder, like Ezekiel, what do these bones represent? And if you look down at verse 11, it says that we learn these bones represent the whole house of God, that these are the believers, that these are the people of God, that by them being cut off from the land to which God led them, by them losing, this is ultimately... uh, by them ultimately losing access to the presence of God in the temple, that this was a sort of death. That being cut off from the communion, the accessibility of God was death. And so for Ezekiel, these bones, they represent a spiritual death of the people. And I think that we can relate to what Ezekiel saw. (laughs) On my jogging route, I often passed this large uh, stone church, one that would probably have seated about a thousand people. Churches like this are very typical in our neighborhoods. You probably, if you jog, also have one on your jogging route. And there's a stone in it that reads 1909 to 1919, which to me just sort of stands a testament to the sweeping changes that we've seen happen in this province. That only a hundred years ago there were enough resources and people and, and, and desire to build a structure like this in the name of God. But today, today, as we run by these, they feel like exposed skeletons. And to be clear, I want to be precise, that my my vision isn't to return Catholicism back to the center of the public square. The the history of Catholicism in this uh, province is complicated, but Speaking carefully, I think much of what fell was primarily the establishment, a sort of skeleton of the actual life-giving presence of God that was meant to be in place. And so there's a sense in Quebec, there's a sense that with these many empty uh, skeletons, these church buildings on our jogging roots, and the sort of triumphant secularism that has moved in, that the church is dead. The idea, then, of gospel renewal can seem distant and somewhat impossible. And so we can relate to Ezekiel. And in verse 3, Son of man, God asks. Son of man, can these bones live? Can these bones live? Is there hope for renewal? And notice, then, this. That the Spirit of the Lord has taken Ezekiel and has actually reset his position before he asks him this question. Where has he set him? In verse 1, it says, He set me down in the middle of the valley. Ezekiel got positioned 
in the middle of the valley of the dead? Is this a place where you would want to be positioned? This is, this is a sort of uh, horror scene, a graveyard full of bones, a whole lot of bones scattered left and right. And yet, why does God do this to Ezekiel? I think God moved him there to show Ezekiel the bigger picture of what he's doing. I don't want you to stay back. I don't want you, Ezekiel, to, to cluster you and the other people of God to separate yourselves just with those who are living. No, go into the middle. Go into the middle of the valley of the dead. And similarly, Jesus says to us, you, people of God, you are the salt of the earth. And in this, Jesus isn't just calling us to be flavorful Christians. No, salt was a preservative. It kept the meat from decaying. And so as salt, Jesus calls us into the middle of the places of decay to be salt in the valley of the dead. And so I could ask it like this. Who are the spiritually dead in your life? Who are those who have no ultimate hope our meaning, our purpose, our satisfaction, our freedom, our joy in their lives? Who are those who, in other words, don't enjoy communion with the living God, a God who dwells with us? Do you care for their good? Do you love them? Are you involved in their lives? Or I could ask it like this. What are the places of decay in your life? What are the the toxic family relationships that you have avoided reconciliation with and just distanced yourself? Have you made the conditions of your coworkers so miserable that they distance themselves from you? They'd prefer not to interact with you. Or maybe you have friends in need, friends who have been reaching out to you, friends who have been trying to call, and you've said, oh, I, don't, I can't do that, not now. Avoid their calls. And Jesus is calling us in this to be salt in the places of decay, not to separate. Who here was volunteering this, uh, volunteering this past week for Red Frogs? I see some hands. Okay, not many. But uh, if you don't know what Red Frogs is, it's a harm reduction uh, network that our church uh, is involved in, a harm reduction and a safety network. Um, and this would be their motivation behind it, right? Uh, loving our fellow students, many of us are students here, not staying away uh, from the tough situations. It's, I find it humorous that it's uh, Christians who are via red frogs often uh, invited into the, the biggest, uh, intensest parties in our city. Last time I, I volunteered, I actually found myself in a, I don't know, like a dystopian almost situation. Um, I was... Uh, here I was in this nightclub, and it was actually a former church building, and I'm volunteering alongside another pastor of a different church in our city, and we're going around, and we're trying to hydrate all these students, and this party is really hopping, like it's really, really wild. And in this, I, I realized how paradoxical the situation was, right? Instead of inviting people into the church, here we were pastors uh, being invited into a nightclub that used to be a church in order to serve and care for the students who were partying inside. Like, it, it was just very, whoa, mind-bending. But Jesus, in this, right, he calls, us, he calls us to be salt. And so Red Frogs is a good example 
uh, of this. But Jesus also warns that um, about salt that has lost its taste. See, salt can't be destroyed. Um, so what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about salt loses its taste then when it is diluted. And so we aren't to separate on one hand, um, but we aren't to lie down and assimilate on the other hand, right? Neither way. Um, and so you could ask this question, which, in which ways has your witness been diluted, your Christian witness, been diluted by your culture? What are the primary influences uh, in your life? We tend to have this impression that discipleship is a sort of, well, neutral thing. But if you aren't actively pursuing to be discipled in your life, you will inevitably be discipled by those around you. It just Discipleship is, in a sense, what just rubs off on you. And so what are you allowing rub off into you? How have you been shaped by the word of God or the word of on the street? <laughs> I guess... <laughs> you could say. And so God tells us, I don't want you to stay back. I don't want you to cloister. I don't want you to separate ourselves. No, no. Go into the middle. Go into the middle of the valley of the dead and seek the good of all people and love the city. Love the city of man for the sake of the city of God. And in doing this, remember, remember who you are, that you are my people, that you are called to live distinctly, that you're not called to lose your identity. And as a church, I think we often miss this. If I'm honest about our church and what we might be prone to, I think that we would probably be more prone to assimilate than to separate. That the, the pressuring and the conditioning that is on the group of people in this room is that we're more likely to, to give up our beliefs in order to fit into a, I don't know, a sort of public opinion or a popular opinion more ready to listen to the voice of our culture than the voice of God. And so this results in a sort of straining of our communion with God. And there's a spiritual death that can creep in. Ultimately, the spiritual death that Ezekiel sees of his people of God, there's a spiritual death that exists with us and our people as well. It exists among us that Paul talks in Ephesians about us being dead in our sin, being dead in sin, being spiritually dead. What this, what this means is that when, for, for those who reject God, for those who reject God who is the author and sustainer of all life, that our human spirits, in absence of being connected with God, are actually, they're cut off, and they're, they're withering in the absence of God's life-giving presence. There's a sort of death that comes in. And that's what we refer to as spiritual death. And this is the default stance of the human heart, a heart that's set in opposition to God, that's set in rejection of God. And it's an absolute tragedy because we're dying. And yet, this is where the grace of Jesus can be applied to us. This is where the grace of Jesus, he has come in. And when we were spiritually dead, he takes on death in our place so that we could be made alive in him. This is the message of the grace of God, because it's something that we totally don't deserve, that when our communion with God was cut off, that Jesus came in and reinstituted it on our behalf, taking our place and the consequences of the sin that we deserved. All of this so that communion with God for you and for me could be restored, 
communion with the author of life itself, an eternal source of hope and joy and meaning and all those things I was listing off before. And so at once, the, the gravity of our situation, the sin that we find ourselves in, it's, it's humbling. We are humbled. Our, our, we are made more aware of our sin, you could say it like this, than the sin of anyone else when we recognize our state before God. What a humbling reality. And then we look at what Jesus has done for us, taking it on himself, extending us grace, the righteousness that he earned for us, What an emboldening reality. So at once, we are both humbled by our sin and emboldened by the the forgiveness of Jesus that we don't merit that's extended to us in his grace. And so how does this, how does this gospel influence our vision for gospel uh, renewal in our city? Well, one of the ways it does is that Church 21, in its vision, we define ourselves as a missional uh, church. And that means that we recognize we are called to stand in a position, the sort of uh, middling that we see here, the middle of the valley. That through the gospel, that while we've been humbled of our pride, that means there's no need to cloister ourselves. There's no need to separate, right? Rather, through the gospel, with this humility, we can maintain cultural uh, relevance, seek to be culturally relevant. And yet, because of the boldness that we're given through the gospel, we... We can be helped from assimilating, right? We can be enabled to, to, to withstand and be biblically faithful. And so we have this vision of being biblically faithful, both biblically faithful and culturally relevant. This is the sort of middle way that you see here. And this is what helps constitute us being a missional church. And by missional, I mean we seek to enter into the stories of our culture and retell them with the story of the gospel, biblically faithful, culturally relevant. At once, see that there's a a sort of at once a a side that challenges the culture's narrative and at once a side that can commend the culture's narrative. I'll give you an example of this uh, I heard a few weeks back. I was, some of you know, I've told you about my dentist before now. I'm starting to get to know all my, all the people in my life. (laughs) I was having a chat with my dentist. This is the latest chat we had. And she's a Coptic Orthodox Christian and I've I learned Coptic is the ancient Egyptian language before Arabic came in over with uh, Islam and took over the country. And uh, so it's, it's preserved in the liturgy of, of the church, but not, we're not talking about the liturgy of the church. Um, something came out in, in my conversation here uh, with her um, uh, about a song that they, that they sing as part of their Good Friday celebrations um, in the Coptic church. Um, and it's a song she said was called Golgotha. And she said it, was, it is sung to the same mourning tune that they used to bury the ancient Egyptian pharaohs to. That when Christianity had arrived with the apostle Mark in Egypt, the people of Egypt had understood Christianity at once to be a critique and a fulfillment of their hopes and beliefs. It was a critique that King Jesus was a better Lord than any of the pharaohs had ever been. And it was a fulfillment that King Jesus was the true and better pharaoh who died never to die again. And so on Good Friday in the services, they would sing to the tune of Golgotha, remembering King Jesus who had died for them never to die again. 
the fulfillment of the hopes and dreams of the Egyptian people. And so this is an example of being missional, isn't it? Being entering, able to enter into the stories of the culture and retell them with the hope and the joy of the gospel. And so in order to do this, we need to stand in the middle, in the middle of the valley of dry bones. And this is the position that you could say resets us for renewal. And the second is a vision Oh, I got behind there. That rebuilds. Verse 4. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you, and I will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live. And you will know that I am the Lord, so I prophesied as I was commanded. And so this is uh, the first thing that Ezekiel was commanded to do, to speak over the dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And this seems like an, a pretty far out, flat out, ridiculous thing to do, doesn't it, right? If Ezekiel was like me, he'd be like, what? Like, I got some serious reservations about this, God. <laughs> like, what? oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord, right? There's a sense of absolute folly to what's going on here. And yet Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is what? It is the power of God. The idea right, that through an ancient Jewish rabbi from a backwater town with no descendants, that all hope for humankind would come. Right? I mean, there's something ridiculous about this. And how? Through a woke guru who teaches personal fulfillment? No. No, through history's most cruel ever mechanism of torture. Right? Through the cross. That through death itself, Jesus would bring life. And yet, this is the gospel. This is the word of the cross that Paul is referring to here. And so to some, well, it might seem irrelevant to those who believe the cross stands tall as the very crux of history itself. It changes everything. And while to some, what Jesus asks of the Christian might seem repressive, to those who believe his joy becomes the ultimate expression of fulfillment in our lives. And to some, while it might seem foolish to us who believe it is the wisdom of God, and to some it might seem as weak, but to us who believe it is the power of God. And so it is this message that has become a life-giving message of our lives. And it begins to change us like we saw last week, right from the inside out, from below the soil to above the soil of our hearts, reaping, reaching deep down inside, having implications on every area of our lives. And knowing that the gospel changes us, right? Knowing it actually works. We know that because it works in this way, right? From the inside out. We've seen it in our lives. And it then allows us to, to speak with the sort of reckless abandon or foolish abandon over the valley of death. And so we speak the word. And what happens? Uh, verse 7. Uh, Brian, can you grab my water? It was down there. And so I prophesied as I, com I was commanded, 
And as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were, thank you, sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. So here we have it again. This is the change from the inside out. And so you have the basics First, remember uh, the bones, like sort of puzzle pieces scattered on the ground, a million pieces, and yet the word has power to, to bring them together, to reorder them from that chaotic uh, state. Uh, it's first the bones, and then it's the tendons, and then it's the flesh, and then it's the skin. And so we speak the word of God. The word of God has power to reorder. It has power uh, to rebuild. And so you might think, Okay, speaking the word, I get it. Speaking over bones, that's, that's the pastor's job, right? Well, no. Speaking the word is for everyone. So what does it look like then for us to speak the word over bones? Well, I often, if I was to start off our, the discussion around this question, I often need the word spoken over me. I often need the word spoken to me. I need its truth to challenge the lies that I tell myself. I need to be built up and encouraged, my heart shaped and reordered by it. And for this to happen, that requires me spending regular time reading the Word of God, regular time reading the Bible, valuing it, seeing it as an authority over my life, allowing it to to reshape and to reorder me. And so this is why regular time in the Scripture is important. And it can also happen by you having the word spoken over you. That's what happens in community. And I think one of the primary ways that we offer this as Church 21, well, one of them I spoke about last week, change groups, groups of two and threes, guys with guys, girls with girls. The other way, since I spoke about that last week, is city groups. Um, City groups are a family, like Brian mentioned at the beginning, a family of servants on mission, groups of 10 to 12 or 14 people meeting in, in different neighborhoods across the city. And something that's been cool uh, in our city group, and I, I've mentioned this, but it's, it's good, I'll mention it again, um, that we've been taking time to hear each other's stories in the group, one at a time. In detail, we say, you know, uh, start, tell us, tell us everything from your grandparents until now. Ooh. All the significant moments in your life, like the landmark moments, the, the times in which you've seen God at work. And we listen, and then I, we end with this, what would you like prayer for in your life right now? And this is where other people are able to speak the word over us, to each other. That to things like your anxiety and your distress, look at the ways that God has, has been sovereign, that he has provided for you through the death of Jesus. Or even just look at the ways that he's provided for you in the, the story you just told of your life in these different landmarks. Recall what God has done. Or here's another one. To your shame. Remember how Jesus took your shame on himself. That he carried it on himself to the cross so that you could wear his righteousness. That God doesn't see you in shame, but he sees you as wearing Christ's righteousness. The righteousness of his son. This is what someone recently spoke to another in our community. And so this is how we speak to each other, speaking the word over each other in community. And so if you're here and you're not yet connected to Christian community, I would encourage you, um, 
It was mentioned at the beginning, fill out a contact card or come speak to me afterwards or anybody on our, uh, our, our greeting team with the blue uh, shirt. But back to our text. Ezekiel has, he has spoken the word, and so we see the bones have formed skeletons, and they've taken on flesh and skin, and yet, at the end of verse 8, it says this, but there was no breath in them. There was no breath in them. And I think there's a, a danger uh, that's being highlighted here. A danger in which you can know the word, and yet it have no life. No life in you. That you can be a word zombie. <laughs> What's a word zombie? Well, that's when the Bible remains just this mere head knowledge to us. And it can really go a long way. You can read it. You can speak it. You could even teach it. But it has no real power. It has no real power to change you. No real power to transform you. Because if the spirit isn't in it, there is no Life. And so are you a word zombie? Have you just taken on the word but not actually let it transform you? Not actually let it speak to you? Have an authority in your life? Not be attentive to the spirit as it speaks? Are you just stuffing your head? See, I don't want to just know scripture. I want to be renewed by scripture. I don't want to just know about God. I want to know God. And so we have the word that rebuilds, but finally we have the spirit that renews. This is verse 9. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. And so Ezekiel is commanded to do a second thing here. We saw in verse 4, he was to speak the word. He was commanded to speak the word. And now here in verse 9, he's commanded to, to prophesy to the breath. Some of you might know what the word uh, for breath is in Hebrew, uh, ruach. It's the same word that you have for wind or for spirit. And so if you, like, for example, if you see the branches of a tree swaying on a summer's day, you could ask, well, what's that? Well, it's ruach. Or if you were to put your hand in front of your face as you exhale and you feel that warm air in it, you'd say, what's that? Well, that's, that's ruach. And so both what's inside of me and what's moving that tree there are ruach. It's the life-animating presence and spirit of God. And so these two commands of Ezekiel, they're actually parallel to what you have in the original uh, creation of man. That you, have, you have the dust, the forming, and the ordering of material, and then you have the second command, the divine breath of God that breathes into man, and man becomes a living soul. And so as we talk about a vision for renewal, this point that, it, that the text as a whole is making is absolutely crucial, that both the Word and the Spirit together are what bring life. I was, um, last week as I was praying through this, uh, this series, through the vision of the church, I went on this really long run, and I was away to, 
to help me extendedly process through this stuff. And so I ran and I ran. I actually ended up at the Mount Royal Lookout. And if you're visiting here this morning, highly recommend it. Great view of the city. But I was there. And I was praying over the city. <clears throat> and as I prayed, I was actually asking that same question that Ezekiel was asked of. Can these bones live? Lord, can this culture live again? Can these people live again? And so I'm praying over this, and as I'm praying, I see in the periphery of my vision the branches on the trees swaying. And this thought come, came to me that in, in one sense, right, these branches, they're just being blown by the wind. That's sort of my scientific, naturalistic, secular reductionism, whatever you want to call it. But in another sense, in the biblical worldview, in the mind shaped by the biblical worldview, this is ruach. This is the life-animating presence of God. And so that same spirit that moved the branches, the same spirit that was giving me breath to get to that lookout is the one that was able to bring life to the city. And that he is actually not far from any one of us, right? This is the, the same spirit of the God that is present to stain is also available and present to bless in all its power, in all its glory. And so I think the reply of the vision would be, Speak the word and pray boldly for the Spirit to come upon you in the city. See, we can only, it's almost one of the, the tensions of this, or the hard points of this. We can only prepare for renewal. We can't actually bring it. We can only set up the sail, but it's God who can, he alone ultimately is the one who can send the wind. It's ultimately his spirit that renews. So it's not going to be me, right? It's not going to be you. It's not going to be the preaching. It's not going to be the music. It's not going to be the lights or the laser, whatever you want, right? It's not going to be that that can fix hearts of sin, that transforms people's lives, that gives good gifts for the common good and the edification of the church, right? No. But these are, yeah, these are all the normal ways in which God works. And renewal is just the intensification of those same things. And so we want to be ready. We want to be ready for that next move of God in which he can sweep through our province, when he can sweep through our city, right? But we have to set sail in some sense, right? To pray like Jonathan Edwards, I think we call it, extraordinary prayers, begging and longing for God to bring renewal. That like it says in verse 10, that an exceedingly great army would arise, a people ready to lay down their lives, to seek the shalom of the city, the common good of the city, of all people in this city, out of their love for God. And so we are to prepare expectantly and pray boldly for the Spirit. And so Ezekiel is called to prophesy one more thing. One more part of this vision. It's in verse 11. Verse 11, he said to me, Son of man. And this is where we begin to learn um, what this vision was all about. Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. We saw this. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and I will raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit 
within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And so this vision that Ezekiel has been having in this third stage of it, it just balloons in expectancy. That more than the people, more than this being a a vision for the renewal of people returning to their land, right? This This is the ultimate hope that we have of communion with God. No longer in a temple somewhere, but that his spirit could be placed inside of us. This is the longing of the Old Testament, and it's brought to bear in the person of Jesus, who makes a way for us at the cross, so that he can put his Holy Spirit in us, making, like we sing, making our hearts clean, so that we can be a temple of the living Spirit of God. And Jesus, this prophecy of being raised from the grave, Jesus is the first fruits of this taking place. It's like at a harvest, right? You, you get that first apple on the tree, and you know this apple signifies all the other ones are going to come soon. And so Jesus is the first fruit of the resurrection. His return from death, never to die again, signals that death has been defeated. And that we will be raised again by his resurrection power for those who know him. And so with the resurrection power of Jesus behind us, that gives us courage. And with the resurrection hope of Jesus in front of us and his return, this gives us certain hope. And so how do we express this as a church? There's a lot in this. There's a lot in this vision for renewal. Um, But like I was mentioning earlier, our city groups are, like we described, a family of servants on mission. And we view these as the primary way or vehicle which which we can be uh, blessed and be blessed by the city. That there's a sort of mutual exchange that takes place there. And this is, it's in these city groups that community formation happens. It's in these city groups where the reconciliation between different people can happen, where justice and mercy is lived out, where gospel maturity and discipleship uh, happens. And it's actually the multiplication of that good thing. It's the multiplication of those city groups that results in churches getting planted. And so we have a vision then. You can see why our vision is so much about church planning because we see them as a vehicle through which God can bring all of these things. And so we have a vision for planting and participating and planting and revitalizing many healthy, mature churches in this city and in this province. And we've actually already started doing that. It was mentioned earlier, our church is about eight years old. And within that time frame, we've planted the French service that meets on the other side. We've also helped revitalize a church in the, rest, the West Island called Reach Montreal. We're working with a church revitalization in Verdun, Eglise Baptiste de Verdun, sending along a pastor there, participating with the French church in doing that. We're planning and we're training more leaders in the coming year through our Acts 29 Academy. We have a vision to reach this city a vision to reach this people in this province with the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet we recognize, of course, when I'm saying this, here, you can't do this, we can't do this alone, right? It's not just going to be our city. It's going to be all the people of God working together. It's going to be all the churches in the city that share this vision coming together. And it requires new leaders and new churches infused with the gospel 
to be stepping up in every neighborhood. And so we need you. We need you. You're a gospel carrier. You're a culture maker, the people that you work with, the people that you interact with, right? how you use your time, that you, in all of these things, you are, you're an agent of the gospel, that you impact our people, our city, and our culture. And yet, why do we do all of this? Why does it all come? Why do we do this? Well, because we've experienced the goodness, the truth, and the beauty of the message of Jesus. And so that's our vision, that we exist. We exist to see the truth, the goodness, and the beauty of the gospel saturate and transform Montreal for the glory of God and the good of all people while we anticipate his return. And so if I was to bring it back to the beginning, it would be this. Don't mislive your life. Don't be busy doing nothing. Seek the good of the city of man for the sake of the kingdom of God. This is Christ's call to you. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that it's ultimately you that is our vision, our hope, and our delight. That you can reset us where you want. You can lead us into the middle of the valley of death and dry bones. And it's your word that rebuilds, and it's your spirit that renews. And so I pray, God, that we would be a people shaped by your word. We would be a people that beg with expectation and bold prayer that you would move, that you would blow again, that your spirit would come and bring revitalization to our hearts and to this city. For your glory and the good of all people, we ask this in Jesus' name, knowing that you alone are able, and we do this, with joy, in Jesus' name, amen.